On Sunday, horrible white nationalists rallied at the California State Capitol over in Sacramento in a show of support, they said, for Donald Trump. There, they were confronted by hundreds of leftist counter-protesters who proceeded to attack the white nationalists with rocks and sticks and bottles. They even assaulted a reporter to get things started. The battle ended with 10 people injured, including seven people stabbed. The media reported all of this as an even-handed clash. Here's the Sacramento Bee's headline, for example, quote, A rally by a small group of neo-Nazi demonstrators at the state capitol on Sunday erupted into violent clashes with protesters. Who initiated the violence? How did it erupt? You can't tell. Here's the LA Times. What violence began almost immediately, authorities and witnesses said. Again, who started it? Who knows? The press do. They just don't want to report it properly. Here's what the Sacramento Bee itself reported, buried several paragraphs down. Quote, The first sign of violence came just before 11 a.m. when KCRA reporter Mike Lurie and his cameraman were caught in an altercation with anti-fascist protesters shouting no cameras and demanding they leave. Let's pause that for just a second. That's hilarious, okay? They were, they were confronted by anti-fascist protesters shouting no cameras and demanding they leave. <laughs> the report continued, quote, We're not causing the problem. Your belligerent people are causing the problem, Lurie told the crowd before someone knocked his mic from his hand and others tried to grab the camera. These are the anti-fascist protesters. The pair were eventually shoved out of the crowd and crossed the street away from the protesters. Damien Osborne, a Sacramento community activist who came out to join the anti-Nazi protesters Sunday, said more trouble erupted about 11.20 a.m. when a neo-Nazi with a stick, a sign, and a shirt with a swastika and the words white power approached the crowd. Quote, he dodged a bottle and then a rock, and then someone broke a rock over his back, said Osborne, 26. The organizer said, stop, let him speak. Then some folks came up to take his sign away, and he wouldn't let go, so a girl from the anti-racist side punched him. As soon as he was getting beat down... The cops came and grabbed him and started shooting rubber pellets. Unquote. This is all from the Sacramento Bee. The media cover anti-Trump violence at Trump rallies the exact same way. When anti-Trump protesters show up and start violently assaulting Trump supporters, the press simply calls it a scrum unworthy of further differentiation. They even cover this stuff the same way when somebody like me, an anti-Trump, anti-white nationalist, mainstream conservative, speaks at a college campus. There's a reason for this. According to the left, non-leftist violence isn't violence. Non-leftist, non-leftist rhetoric is, re- is violence, sorry. And according to the left, leftist violence isn't violence at all. Take, for example, this tweet from Montel Williams in the aftermath of the Sacramento violence. Quote, violence is never the answer. That said, way to shut down some neo-Nazi Sacramento. Uh, no. But that's the way the left thinks. Over the weekend, the New York City Gay Pride Parade featured a banner. And the banner said, Republican hate kills. Republican hate kills. That's what it said. Not jihadism kills. That would be factual since the jihadists just actually murdered 49 gay people in Orlando. But Republicans who don't support same-sex marriage are just like actual people who kill people. If the left believes this, is it any wonder that they sanction violence against everyone from mainstream conservative speechgoers to Trump backers to neo-Nazis? These groups aren't remotely similar except in one critical aspect. The left doesn't like them and lumps them all together and then says they're worthy of violence. This is the end of political speech in America. If certain speech is violence, certain speech can be banned. If certain violence is speech, certain violence will be permitted. This is morally hideous. Unfortunately, that's what the modern left has created. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Alrighty, so tons to get to. It's a very, very busy news day here on a Monday. You survived the weekend, and the weekend went pretty well because Brexit happened, and then we come back and things just go straight to the crapper. So let's start off with this. Uh, briefly, I just want to show you the footage, what I'm talking about in Sacramento here. So here's what it looked like in Sacramento. A bunch of neo-Nazis go to the Capitol. They're terrible people. 
They go to the Capitol to, to yell about white supremacy. Always ironic to me, by the way, when white supremacists yell about white supremacy, because invariably they're incredibly stupid. So they're yelling about how superior they are while being incredibly stupid. But all these people go there, they have stupid views. People on the left show up, they also have stupid views, not to the same extent, presumably, but they do something significantly worse, which is they start assaulting and beating up the people from the neo-Nazi crowd. The neo-Nazi crowd fights back, and so you get something that looks like this. Oh my god. Notice the guy with the sticks about to wail on that dude. Boom, down he goes. We literally taken like two back doors and beaten. Seven people, by the way, were stabbed during this altercation. Stabbed. A couple were in critical condition. And so who started that? The the the, the people who started that were the were the anti-fascists, which is just typical. It's just lovely. I also want to show you that poster that I that I was talking about from the gay pride parade. Right, Republican hate kills all these gay people standing behind a giant rainbow flag that says Republican hate kills. Um, a Democrat Muslim just killed forty nine people in Orlando. So me not wanting to cater a same sex wedding, that's what killed forty nine people in Orlando, not the jihadist who killed forty nine people in Orlando. So this is this is how the left thinks, and it's really why the left are so terrible, and they are. I mean, they're just awful in every way. The theme of today's show is basically that. The left is is making it almost impossible not to vote for Trump. Seriously, like they 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 are they are so awful as human beings. They they espouse such horrible things and stand for such horrible things that the it makes it makes the argument vote Trump to stop them more compelling. It does because there are two ways that that argument could become more compelling. One is Trump could stop sucking. He's not doing that, as we'll get to. Two is the left could become even worse than you thought they were. And the left continues to show they're just as terrible as you always thought that they were. So today, the Supreme Court had a decision that, well, you know, before we even get to that, I, I want to go through for a second. There's breaking news. Here's the, the Democratic National Committee has now released updates to its platform. Over the weekend, they released updates to its platform. So here are some of the things from its updated platform. Okay, the, the, the Democrats are fully extreme. They are fully insane. They are nutcases. They are nuts. Okay, here's some, there's a few of the things. Not all the things, just a few that they updated from in their new Democratic National Committee platform. First off, they say that they want the Department of Justice to investigate alleged corporate fraud on the part of fossil fuel companies who have reportedly misled shareholders and the public on the scientific reality of climate change. Okay, this, so to translate that, what that means is they want Eric Holder, Loretta Lynch, the, the Department of Justice, they want the Department of Justice to prosecute oil companies that give money to institutions like the Heartland Institute that says that it isn't climate change being caused by oil that's the big problem. They want to prosecute them for free speech. Prosecute them. Okay, that's in their platform now. By unanimous consent. No dissenters in the Democratic side on this one. They also want their $15 minimum wage. They've been saying $15 minimum wage since I did a show in Seattle. And uh, when I was doing a show in Seattle, it was proposed by a socialist, an open socialist. Not a Democrat who calls herself a socialist. An actual socialist named Shama Sawant. She's the one who started the $15 minimum wage push. And I, was, I did a debate with her. And I specifically asked her, why not a $1,000 minimum wage? Why, why 15 bucks? And she had no clue. Well, now it's national policy, so they want a $15 minimum wage across the country. And that minimum wage also, by the way, includes the idea that they would end sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. So in other words, if you're a waiter or a waitress and you work for $9 an hour, but you tend to earn another 20 bucks an hour in tips, which is not rare, they don't want you to be able to be paid that. They want you to be paid $15 minimum wage. Restaurants typically 
end up taking the tips, right? That's that's what ends up happening. So well done for for the for the people who are working in restaurants. They want to abolish the death penalty full out. This is new. I mean, we always knew the Democrats wanted to do this, but now they've actually acknowledged it. Also, they want you to pay for every abortion on planet Earth. That's not really an exaggeration. I mean, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. Here's what they actually say in their new platform. Quote, the platform also vows to oppose and seek to overturn all federal and state laws that impede a woman's access to abortion, including by repealing the Hyde Amendment. All federal and state laws, all of them. Okay, they want you to be able to get an abortion literally one second before the baby exits your body and maybe even after that. Not only that, they want to get rid of the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is a federal law that says federal taxpayer dollars cannot be used to sponsor abortion. They want to get rid of it. So they want you to pay for other people's abortion. So abortion up to the point of birth, maybe beyond, and they want you to pay for that. So that's very exciting. They also support the repeal of harmful restrictions that obstruct women's access to health care around the world, including the global gag rule and the Helms Amendment, which bar U.S. assistance to other countries that provide safe, legal abortion. So in other words, they want us to fund abortion overseas, too. So it's not just enough to kill babies here. We have to go other places and kill babies, too. That's exciting. They also want to expand Social Security. They want to expand it. So it's hard to bankrupt us. They want to increase the amount we spend on Social Security. As far as illegal immigration, they want to, quote, keep families together, end family detention. So if a family comes across, we're just supposed to let everybody go. Let everybody go. Close private detention centers. Okay, Nine of the top 10 detention centers in the United States for ICE, for illegal immigrants, are private. They want to close them. They don't want to open new detention centers. They just want to close them. So they want to release all of the illegal immigrants. They want to release all of them. And then they want to guarantee legal counsel for all unaccompanied minors in immigration proceedings. So now you want to deport people? Now we have to hire attorneys for you, a non-American citizen, so that you can be deported. This means everybody gets to stay. They also come out in favor of nationalized health care. Right? They say openly. They say they want access to public coverage through Medicare or a public option. That means the destruction of all insurance companies in the United States. Once you have a public option, what that means is that they can drive the private companies out of business because no matter how bad the public option is, they can always just come and take more of my money to fund it. Right? If an insurance company goes bankrupt, they can't take money from me to fund it. If the government goes bankrupt, they just take more of my money. Finally, they want to surrender to Black Lives Matter. They say their current draft calls for ending the era of mass incarceration. There's no era of mass incarceration, folks. We're not taking innocent people and throwing them in prison by the score. Okay, the fact is people in prison commit crimes. That's why they're there. Okay, this isn't the Soviet Union. There are no gulags. People aren't being imprisoned for political views, except Democrats who actually want to do that in this platform, right? But they say mass incarceration must end. Shutting down private prisons. Again, no building of new public prisons. So presumably letting everybody out of prison, which, by the way, has worked out awesome in California. The crime rates are up double digits the last couple of years because of Jerry Brown releasing people from prison. They want to reform the grand jury process, right? That's the, they don't like that because in Ferguson, it ended up with the proper acquittal of the officer in Ferguson. So they want to get rid of that. They want to invest in re-entry programs, which is where we do job retraining for people who end up in prison after three years anyway. And they want to ban the box. Okay, what banning the box means is they want to make it illegal for you when you're employing people to ask them if they have a prior felony on their record. Okay, the Democrats are out of their damn minds. They are out of their damn minds. Okay, and just to prove how out of their minds they are today, the Supreme Court issues a decision on abortion that is fully crazy. So the, the, the decision on abortion goes like this. So in Texas, there are two laws on the books. One is a law that says doctors must have admitting privileges at hospitals in order to perform abortions. But what that means is, you know how if, if you are right now, let's say you get sick and you go to the ER, you have to fill out a ream of paperwork in order to be admitted to the hospital. Doctors who have admitting privileges 
They just take their patients. No need to fill out paperwork. We just bring you to the hospital and we leave you there. And it's already been filled out. They have admitting privileges at the hospital. They say that a doctor should have admitting privileges at the hospital if you want to perform an abortion because if something goes wrong, you don't want to have to sit there filling out the paperwork. And one that says clinics must renovate to be considered ambulatory surgery centers, meaning that the hallways have to be big enough that if we need to get a gurney down the, the hallway, then we should be able to get a gurney down the hallway. That's what an ambulatory surgery center means, right? Here at the office, that's not the case. There are certain hallways here that are too skinny, but at hospitals, obviously, the hallways are really wide. So the reason the left doesn't like this is because a lot of the abortion clinics don't have these things. So they think the abortion clinics will be closed. The Supreme Court today said that this was impermissible restrictions on a woman's right to an abortion. So let's start, number one, with the fact that there is no right to abortion in the Constitution of the United States. End of story. End of story. None. Nowhere, nada, zilch, zippo. None. There is no right to an abortion in the Constitution of the United States. That comes from a whole line of cases from Griswold v. Connecticut to Roe v. Wade that creates this vague right to privacy that for some reason doesn't apply to my right to gun ownership, but does apply to your ability to go publicly to a doctor who's not you and get an abortion on a third party, a baby. Right? Somehow that's a right to privacy issue. The right to privacy does not exist in the Constitution of the United States, but they ruled that it does. Then they figured that there, there are health restrictions on lots of doctors and nurses and medical facilities all over the place, right? That's true. So how do they say that these ones are no good? Including, by the way, they struck down fire restrictions. Like They struck down a restriction that says that the, that the abortion clinic has to be able to take somebody who's unconscious out of the, out of the clinic if there's a fire. Right? They struck that down. They said that's too, that's too harsh. On, it prevents a woman's right to choose. Right? It prevents a woman's right to choose. Here's what's so stupid about all of this. We all presumably have a right, according to the left, I would assume, to eat in restaurants. Right? We have a right, but there are health restrictions on restaurants, aren't there? Right? Every restaurant you go to has health restrictions on it from the state. Whether you think it's good or whether you think it's bad, it's not unconstitutional to have health restrictions on your restaurant. I tend to think it's stupid, but that doesn't mean that it's not unconstitutional. That doesn't mean that it's unconstitutional. Right? This would be the equivalent of if the government said, if the Supreme Court said, Health restrictions on the restaurants you eat at prevent restaurants from opening. Therefore, the health restrictions are unconstitutional and there can be no health restrictions. Right? That's, that's basically what they're arguing right now. And all of this is based off false law. It's very irritating as a, as a, constitutional, as a constitutionally aware guy, like A-plus from Harvard Law and Constitutional Law. You know, the, the fact that the Supreme Court basically pulls these decisions directly from its own colon and then makes up a, a legal framework for it is really highly irritating. So they just, I mean, the truth is that they, they've decided this case back, and the Fifth Circuit decided this case back in 2013. The people who are on the losing side didn't bother to appeal to the Supreme Court. They appealed the exact same case now that violates what's called res judicata, which is the idea, res judicata, which is the idea that the case has already been decided. There is nothing about this decision that, it, that is legal in any way. It's all a politically motivated decision, very clearly. And Justice Thomas, who I've always said was the best justice on the court, even when Scalia was alive, he has this one quote that I think is really telling. He says, 80 years on, the court has come full circle. The court has simultaneously transformed judicially created rights, like the right to an abortion, into preferred constitutional rights, while disfavoring many of the rights actually enumerated in the Constitution. But our Constitution renounces the notion that some constitutional rights are more equal than others. A plaintiff either possesses the constitutional he is asserting or not. And if not, the judiciary has no business creating ad hoc exceptions so that others can assert rights that seem especially important to vindicate. What happened in this case is that it's a right to an abortion that, that was being sued over, but the abortion doctor doesn't have a right to an abortion, right? He's a dude. 
So the doctors don't have a right to an abortion. They weren't suing over anything that impacts them. The court made an exception and allowed the doctors to sue on behalf of the patients, which never happens ever. So basically, the court had its decision in mind. They decided to push that decision forward, and the rest of it just didn't matter. The rest of it just didn't matter. And this is what the left does. If the left takes control of the court, which they already have, I mean, let's not pretend. Justice Kennedy is a leftist. Okay, Justice Kennedy, the only case in which he didn't vote to the left in the last five years, really, was the was the immigration case, and there it was a, a close thing. He also didn't vote for, for Obamacare, but Roberts did, so it didn't matter. We've had a left court for a little while here. We've had a left court for a little while. If Kennedy's the swing vote, then you're in trouble, because Justice Kennedy uh, tends to fall to the left, particularly on social issues. So, all that said, you've got these Supreme Court rulings, and they come out. And here's what Hillary Clinton tweeted. This is why I say the left is making it very difficult not to just try and stop them with any means at our disposal, even a, a, an absolute crapshoot like Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton tweets, quote, This fight isn't over. The next president has to protect women's health. Women won't be punished for exercising their basic rights. Okay, who's being punished for exercising a basic right? First of all, I didn't realize it was a basic right to kill a baby. I didn't realize that was a thing. In fact, it seems to me that if you acknowledge that that's a baby there in the womb, and the left always does this, right? They'll say that it, on TV, you'll see a woman's pregnant and say, oh, how's the baby doing? And the mom, who, the mom who wants the baby, oh, it's beautiful. I'm, I, I feel like I'm glowing. Same woman, same pregnancy. So, oh, I don't want it. It's terrible. Oh, well, just get rid of that thing. I mean, it's, it's just ghoulish. It's absolutely ghoulish. And she says women won't be punished for exercising their basic rights. Okay, babies are not a punishment. Babies are a gift. This is vile, vile stuff. She then tweets, SCOTUS's decision, Supreme Court of the United States, that's what SCOTUS is, is a victory for women in Texas and across America. Safe abortion should be a right, not just on paper, but in reality. Well, it isn't a right. What she declares to be a right doesn't make it a right. I mean, this is all crazy towns. This is crazy town stuff. And she wants you to pay for abortions, and she wants you to pay for abortions abroad. The left is radical in every way. They're violent. I mean, these anti-left, these anti-fascist protesters and anti-fascist protesters in, in Sacramento who beat people up because they disagree, those are fascist protesters. If you beat people up because they disagree, by definition, you're a fascist. And this is, this is sick stuff. I mean, so Hillary is campaigning with Elizabeth Warren, and Elizabeth Warren is kind of nerdy Hillary. And you see that here. They're, they're wearing the same coat. I don't know if they, they decided to be twinsies this morning, and they're all going to dress in the same color blue. Um, they, all went to, they all went to Violet Beauregard's closet and hijacked a couple of her outfits. Elizabeth Warren, who's legitimately the only, maybe the only woman in America more irritating than Hillary Clinton. Uh, I mean, I know Elizabeth Warren, so I can say that with, with full verve. Elizabeth Warren is now stumping for Hillary Clinton after spending the last few years bashing her as a corporate insider because Elizabeth Warren wants power. And, uh, and Focahontas over here, a lady who claims that she's Native American, which she is not, and got her job at Harvard Law based on her minority status, even though she's whiter, she, she, she's whiter than Sean King. I am more Native American than, than Elizabeth Warren is. Here's Elizabeth Warren stumping for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton believes that racism, hatred, injustice, and bigotry have no place in our country. She fights for us. She fights for us, and we will fight for Hillary Clinton. Oh, crazy land. Crazy hands over here. Please join me in welcoming to the stage our next president. Whoa, come down there with the hands. Everybody's going there with the hands. It's crazy. Okay, so this delightful pair, people are saying that Warren might run with Hillary. I don't know how Hillary could possibly have found someone who's more robotic and more irritating than herself, but, I mean, what an absolute horror show. What an absolute horror show. And they continue to lie. They continue to be terrible. 
They continue to be far left. Elizabeth Warren, by the way, isn't going to do much for Hillary Clinton. You know, she doesn't need to shore up the Bernie vote. The Bernie vote's going to come to her because they're socialists. I mean, Sally Cohn, who I debated yesterday at Politicon, she was a Bernie supporter. She even said to me backstage that she would think that in a general that, that when it came down to Bernie versus Hillary, if it were really that close, she might have voted for Hillary. She says that she would vote for Hillary. Everybody on the left is going to. Everybody on the left is going to. Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, meanwhile, over the weekend, she was on TV and she says that Hillary is the most transparent, the most spectacular person who ever lived. Uh, how about Clinton's ethics? How is she going to answer about that? Well, Hillary Clinton has actually been the most transparent Secretary of State in our history. Uh, she's she's released all of her emails. Uh, she's released her schedules. Uh, you know, I, I think I think the record speaks for itself here. You know, Donald Trump has yet to release his I'm, taxes. Without litigating all of it, you know, there's a lot of pushback on that. Well, again, if we're talking about transparency and ethics, it, is, it has been a given for decades that presidential candidates release their taxes. Donald Trump refuses to do that. He refu refuses to release the documents related to Trump University. Uh, I, I think this is a deflection technique. You know, Paul Manafort is trying to get a, you know, a, a teleprompter in front of him and, and change the subject. It's just not working. And, and, and just real quickly on that subject, you know, what about Hillary Clinton's transcripts for the Goldman Sachs speeches? Well, look, we, uh, Donald Trump has given uh, dozens of uh, paid speeches himself. Nobody's asking him to release them. Again, Hillary Clinton has released her taxes for decades now. Donald Trump hasn't released a single one. All right, we have to assume he's hiding something. I think Donald Trump has a lot of work to do before he starts asking questions about other candidates. Awkward towns make awkward face with, with Hillary Clinton's campaign manager there trying to claim that she's transparent. Of course, she isn't. And Hillary is, is struggling. I mean, she is struggling because... Not only does she represent a far-left extreme ideology, but she's really bad at this. She's really bad at this. So here is Hillary Clinton talking about Brexit. We didn't have a chance to talk about that, so in a minute I'm going to sum up my thoughts on Brexit. But here is, here is Hillary Clinton talking about the British exit from the, from the EU. A lot of Americans woke up on Friday to alarming headlines from across the Atlantic. And they are wondering what this decision in Britain means for us. Now, we are resilient, and we will bounce back from this and from all of the other shocks that are in the system. But it is a reminder that what happens around the world has consequences. We need leaders like yourselves at the local and state and federal level who understand how to work with other leaders to manage risks, who understand that bombastic comments in turbulent times can actually cause more turbulence. No one should be well, confused about Sorry, America's commitment uh, to- she, She's so terrible at this. I mean, so, so this big thing happens with the UK leaving the EU and her basic comment is, we need leaders. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Really enjoyed that one. We need leaders. Okay. That's, that's really exciting. So to move from the left to the right now. So as I've said, the left is making it almost impossible, almost impossible not to jump onto any bandwagon that is anti-the-left. And I'm, I hear it, folks. I hear it. I hear you screaming at me. I get it. Again, it doesn't alleviate any of my problems with handing over the future of the conservative movement to a charlatan like Donald Trump. At this point, stop him at the convention if you have to. Do anything to get somebody who's actually... By the way, he'll get schlonged by Hillary. He's going to get killed by Hillary. The polls over the weekend... Show them down alternatively 5 and 12 points to Hillary Clinton. 
Okay, and, and any talk about how Reagan was losing to Carter at this point, it's not true. There was one poll in which he was losing. All the other polls he was already winning by this point. In any case, Donald Trump was talking about Brexit, but well, let me give you my quick sum up of Brexit. So the British leave the, the EU, and it really is the British. It really isn't the, the Scottish or the, the folks from Wales. Northern Ireland, they, they were actually in favor of staying in the EU. Scotland, they were in favor of staying in the EU. In England, they were very much in favor of leaving the EU. The reason for this is because there are really, really a couple of reasons. One is... There are British people who still believe there's a civilization worth preserving that is unique to the British character, and they feel like it's being ripped away by a bureaucratic elite in Brussels. I'm with them. I agree. Second point, they don't like the fact that immigration across country lines is absolutely free in the EU, and you've got countries like Germany taking in hundreds of thousands of unvetted Muslim Syrian refugees and Libyan refugees. Also, I'm on board with them. I'm on board with them. And finally, some of this is just an anti-elitist thing. Like, I don't want people abroad making rules for me without my vote. And it's not, it's not just anti-elitist, it's anti-anti-democratic. And again, I agree with them. I'm in favor of Brexit. I think Brexit's a good thing. Hillary has no clue how to deal with it. Trump really doesn't either. Trump really doesn't either. So here is, is Trump responding. He, he, was, he just happened to be in Scotland during opening his new golf course, which I, I guess that he was campaigning in Scotland because that all-important 51st state, he really needs to, he really needs to gain their support. By the way, in the last two weeks, Donald Trump has traveled to the vital swing states of Texas and Scotland. And today, Donald Trump is in Maine, where I'm sure he's going to win the presidency in Maine. In any case, in any case, Donald Trump was talking. And here's what it looked like in Turnberry, Scotland, at his golf course. Uh, We've taken the lighthouse, which is a very, very important building in Florida. I mean, in uh, Scotland. And we've uh, we've taken that building and made it uh, something really special. Inside the lighthouse right now is uh, incredible suites, and it's called a halfway house because this is the ninth tee, and it's called a halfway house. And uh, on the bottom, you have dining, and uh, golfers will stop and they'll go and get something to eat, and then they go into the tenth hole, tenth tee, right next door. So the uh, light and it was in disrepair, and all of the people. From- Landmark, Scotland, and all of the people that we had to go through uh, were, I just thank you, because it was, a, it was a long, difficult process getting that approved, but they really wanted to see it at the highest level, and now it's really at a higher level than it ever was. And uh, when you see, I don't know if you'll get the chance, but if you do, you should try and get to see the suites, because they are two of the most beautiful suites you'll ever see. And, you know, when the water's rough today, it's very calm. In fact, I've almost never seen it like this. But... Uh, sometimes you have waves that are literally crashing onto this piece of land that we're standing on. It's one of the most beautiful sights you'll ever see. Uh, this hall didn't exist. Uh, the Royal and Ancient has yeah. been incredible. Uh, they've worked with us mm-hmm. uh, on design. They've wanted to do these changes for probably close to 50 years uh, because they were so obvious. And, and mm-hmm. we've made certain changes to the course. Uh, in addition to that, we fully renovated the course, brand new sprinkler system, the highest level. Oh, good. Um, many of the holes have been uh, jiggered, made even longer, and, and new greens do everything, and yet it's the same Turnberry. You would hit over there, this was a par four, and you'd hit over there, and <laughs> it was a much different thing. Now okay, he, goes, he goes on and on like this. Oh. Right, so is that what, my favorite part of this is the, is, the, is the breaking news Chiron from CNN, Trump speaking from his golf course in Scotland. Right, for like half an hour about the golf course. And he's being, and, and people are tuning in to find out what he thinks of the, the British leaving the EU, which is one of the most significant moments in modern European history, is the, the falling apart 
of this massive European Union organization that really had lost its way after the fall of the Soviet Union. The EU was created, at least in part, as an economic cooperative sphere, the, the European Economic Cooperative, in, in opposition, basically, to the Soviet Union. And then after the Soviet Union fell, they sort of lost their way and forgot what they were all about. He's not talking about that, though. We do get his take on sprinkler systems at Turnberry. So that's, that is absolutely vital. And I have to tell you, it's, it's, it's really funny. He's out there tweeting today. I said Brexit was going to happen. I said it was going to happen. Two weeks ago, literally two weeks ago, somebody asked Donald Trump about Brexit. And Donald Trump said, who is that? Really? Okay, here's Donald. I, I have to read you this quote because this is legitimately, this may be my favorite Donald Trump quote of all time. It's, it's spectacular. It's so good. A reporter asked Donald Trump, and so, you know, now it's time I have to use it. Bad Trump. Okay, so, so here is the, folks, if you can't subscribe, you don't see the good Trump, bad Trump that Lindsay made, and it's, and it's quite wonderful. So the, this reporter asks Trump, are you traveling with foreign policy advisors who knew this was going to happen today? And Trump says, well, I've been in touch with them, but there's nothing to talk about. Uh, you know, I've been saying that I would prefer what happened. I thought this would be a good thing. I think it will turn out to be a good thing, maybe short term not, but ultimately I think it will be a good thing. And I actually been in touch with some. And some, by the way, don't like it. And some do like it. You know, they're advisors. They're like everybody else. They probably know less. Every one of these advisors. Somebody said, gee, you should use advisors that have been really hot for the last five years. I said, really? I think I want to use ones that haven't been involved. Take a look at what's happened in the world. Remember, the original question was, are you traveling with foreign policy advisors who knew this was going to happen today? That is... Some word salad. I mean, you can lose calories on that word salad. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. I, I, my, favorite, my favorite little quote there is, some, by the way, don't like it, and some do like it. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Seuss. Like, that's, some are fast and some are slow. <laughs> okay. Uh, he also, Donald Trump is also walking back, by the way, his, his immigration policy. He said, to, he said a couple of days ago, President Obama has deported vast numbers of people, the most people ever, and it's never reported. I think people are going to find that I have not, not only the best policies, but I have the biggest heart of anybody. And then he was asked about, does this mean mass deportations? He says, no, I wouldn't call it mass deportations. I call it magical Trump unicorn poo. He, he, he says he won't do mass deportations anymore. So you're all suckers, right? I mean, so everybody got suckered by all of this. So, so Chuck Todd confronts Donald Trump's, of, of NBC, confronts Donald Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, uh, or as or as they pronounce it in the in the original, Paul Manafort. Right? Chuck Todd confronts Paul Manafort over speaking at Turnberry for like half an hour on golf courses about the, there's Hillary cut an ad about this, and here's Paul Manafort's response. Coming to Turnberry. In a volatile world, the last thing we need is a volatile president. It obviously picks up on what was a head-scratching event earlier this week, Mr. Manafort, <laughs> which is on the day of the biggest news event in the world. He is in the country at the heart of this, and he's promoting a golf course. This is an example, again, of the tone deafness of the Clinton campaign. First of all, when you, when you look at what was happening in, in, in the Clinton campaign over the last month, they have spent $60 million against Donald Trump on ads like this, talking about things that are totally distracting, uh, distracted and re unconnected to what's going on in the political system. Uh, the American people care about what is going to happen to their lives about change uh, and, and the issues of Brexit, uh, this kind of phony ad uh, doesn't address those things. Uh, and, and Hillary Clinton 
is ignoring the reality because she's part of the establishment. She can't get away from the fact that she is part of the problem that's being rejected. So when she tries to distract with commercials like this, she's once again showing that she is absolutely afraid of the consequences of, of what Brexit represented and what the, the Trump phenomenon in the, in the primaries represented, which is historic numbers of people voting for change against okay. the establishment. But why was it appropriate for Mr. Trump to be promoting a golf course on the day of, frankly, what could be the most impactful decision that a country has made that impacts, you know, the, the global community in a way that we're not fully comprehending yet, and he's promoting a golf course in the middle of his campaign. First of all, Mr. Trump is an international businessman. His success as an international businessman and a person who gets things done is one of the attractions of his candidacy, so that when he says he's going to bring real change to the country, voters believe him. Unlike Mrs. Clinton, who has been saying that for 25 years, and in those 25 years, the only changes that have happened have made people's lives worse. So what's, what's amazing about all of this is you watch Manafort on the one end, and you watch Hillary Clinton's spokesperson on the other, and they can't defend their own people, right? It's impossible. So Paul Manafort is out there saying, my man's an international businessman of mystery. <laughs> he, 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 has, he and Goldfinger are going out. And, and you have, on the other hand, you have Hillary Clinton's person saying she's the most transparent person ever. The funny thing about this campaign, whenever... Hillary's people attack Trump, it's accurate. Whenever Trump's people attack Hillary, it's accurate. Whenever either camp says anything about their own people, it's completely and wildly inaccurate. So that's it. So that's pretty that's pretty hilarious. So what what this does raise is as the left becomes more and more extreme, as they become more and more terrible, should there be a revolt at the RNC? Because let's put aside personal distaste for Trump for just a second and be practical for just a second. You know, maybe the calculus changes after after the convention. Is it possible the calculus changes after the convention and the threat of the left is so bad that you just have to go Trump because Trump is at least not Hillary, at least not Hillary? I'm not sure that the under it's it's tempting. It definitely is. And it's a battle that I fight with myself every day. I mean, it's really something that I consider every single day. Is this the day when the left puts me over the top? Is this the is this the day when when Trump starts to fix himself? And the answer so far is no, because Trump is one of them. Trump is a member of the left. And if I'm going to sign off on my principles, I'd at least like to have victory. I don't think that, but, but I do think if you sacrifice your principles for victory, you don't end up with victory and you don't end up with principles. It makes it very difficult to stick to that position when the left continues to be increasingly terrible. So what this means is that there's been this increasing movement inside the Republican Party to create a revolt at the Republican National Convention. They're looking at the polls. They're looking at the fact that Donald Trump is utterly and wildly incompetent. They're looking at the fact that Donald Trump is likely to get absolutely creamed by Hillary Clinton in this election cycle. Again, latest ABC News poll has Hillary at 51 and Trump at 39. It has now been two months since Donald Trump has broken 42 percent in a national poll. You're not going to win with those kind of numbers. It's just not going to happen. Not without a third party candidate sucking up 18 percent of the vote the way Ross Perot did. So there's a journalist of The New York Times who says he thinks that there's a pretty high probability of some sort of revolt at the RNC. Trump and the RNC are quite nervous about the fact that the convention could get messy. And what you have here is this interesting marriage of convenience between the two, where Trump people who are definitely not party people and party people who are definitely not Trump people mm -hmm. have a common 
uh, goal in preventing the convention from turning into utter chaos. Donald Trump needs to protect his nomination, and the Republican Party, under Reince Priebus, needs to protect the integrity of its nominating process. And if the convention turns into a fight that threatens to deny Donald Trump, the winner of 14 million votes in 37 states, the nomination, that's a real threat to the integrity of the Republican Party's process. Jerry, there's the, a high probability of some kind of revolt. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if they walk off the floor. I don't know if they try to stage some type of coup in a rules committee meeting the week before the convention, but you're pretty much guaranteed some kind of fight. I mean, there are hundreds of delegates who are openly hostile to Donald Trump, and they will be in Cleveland. And I think that that's actually, I think that's right. I, I mean, I, I've been fielding phone calls from people who are actively attempting to do something at the convention to stop Trump from getting the nomination, not only because they think he's unpalatable as a candidate, but because they think that if you really believe this election is that important, you can't give it away by handing the nomination to a guy who's going to get absolutely schlonged, who's going to get destroyed in this campaign. And again, that's the way this is going right now. I mean, the way that this is going is that it's going to be a disaster area. Trump is going to lose and he's going to lose big. So that has to be a serious consideration for all the practical people. And this is really an argument for all the practical people who have been saying a vote against uh, a vote not for Trump is a vote for Hillary. I don't buy that argument. But isn't a vote for Trump at this point, a vote for Hillary, if he's losing by 10, 15 points to her in the polls and there's no prospect of him coming back? He has no campaign organization. The RNC is raising less money now than they've ever raised in the history of the party, basically, for this point in the election cycle. At a certain point, don't you start looking and going, OK, we got to do something about this? There's an RNC rules member who told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that people are gearing up for a fight at the convention. All it would take, basically, is one vote at the convention to open up the delegates and say the delegates can vote for whomever they want for, for utter chaos to break out. And you're seeing how awkward this is making it. Trump's continued candidacy makes it very awkward. It makes it very hard to fight the left with Trump as the candidate. Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate majority leader, he's asked about Donald Trump on ABC and watch him just struggle like, a, like a, an awkward turtle for, for two minutes here. Well, look, I, I think there's no question that he's made a number of mistakes over the last few weeks. I think they're beginning to right the ship. It's a long time until November, and the burden obviously will be on him to convince people that he can handle this uh, job. And I think a good step in the right direction with the changes he made in the campaign. Uh, he's beginning to use a prepared script more often, which I think is absolutely appropriate for any candidate, whether you're uh, a longtime politician like Hillary Clinton or whether you're new to the game like uh, Donald Trump. I didn't hear you say whether you thought he was qualified. Look, that'll be up to the American people to decide. You know, That's he no won the, uh, the Republican nomination fair and square. He got more votes than anybody else against a whole lot of uh, well-qualified candidates. And so our primary voters have made their decision as to who they want to be the nominee. The American people will be able to make that decision in the fall. Wow, wow, wow. So that's the Senate Majority Leader saying he doesn't think that Trump is qualified. George Will, who I think is too moderate. I think George Will is too moderate. But George Will, who's been a, a leading voice in conservatism for 40 years, George Will came out over the weekend. He said, I'm not even in the Republican Party anymore. Trump has caused me to leave. Talk about you. You announced this week that you have left the Republican Party. Why? I left it for the same reason I joined it in 1964 when I voted for Barry Goldwater. I joined it because I was a conservative. I leave for the same reason that I'm a conservative. Give you a timeline. Shortly after Trump became the presumptive nominee, he had a summit meeting with 
Paul Ryan, where they stressed their common principles and their vast shared ground, which is much more important than their differences. I thought that was puzzling, doubly so, because Paul Ryan still didn't endorse them. After Trump went after the Mexican judge from northern Indiana, then Paul Ryan endorsed him. And I decided that, in fact, this is not my party anymore. I changed my registration to unaffiliated 23 days ago. I hardly made an announcement. I just mentioned this in a meeting with the Federalist Society. So the long and the short of it is, as Ronald Reagan said when he changed his registration, uh, I did not leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. Now, not surprisingly, Donald Trump has tweeted his reaction to this news today. Let's put it up on the screen. He says that you are overrated and that you lost your way a long time ago. Would you like to respond well, to Mr. Trump? He has an advantage on me because he can say everything he knows about any subject in 140 characters and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good line. It's a good line and it's, it's also, it also happens to be true. But one of the things that, that's so frustrating about this election cycle is being stuck Defending Donald Trump in order to fight Hillary Clinton is just the worst situation anybody can be in. It's what makes it a struggle because otherwise this is the easiest election in human history. Otherwise, this is so easy. But the fact that Trump is both incompetent and also vile, the fact that he has no principles, right? I mean, he just walked back mass deportations, which means really any deportations. His new policy is essentially, I'll deport the bad ones, which is exactly President Obama's policy. I mean, what's a policy he hasn't walked back at this point? It makes it to say, I'm going to sacrifice my principles to vote for a guy who's going to lose anyway and who's also going to drag conservatism through the mud. That's an uphill slog. And no matter how bad the left gets, I'm not sure that you end up in a situation where that calculus changes. Now, if you're the deciding vote, you know, if it comes down to a really, really close election, you're the deciding vote. Maybe in the privacy of the voting booth, you decide that the next four years are more important than the next 40. And you think, okay, well, maybe Trump will be better than Hillary, and so I'll do that, and we know Hillary will be terrible. And I get that logic. But if right now, we're talking about right now, we're not talking about November 8th, we're talking about now, today. If you're looking at the polls right now and saying to yourself, I got to support Trump through the convention because, hey, he won, I got to be saying, I, I don't see the logic, and I think that you're, you're giving credence and impetus to a guy uh, who is who's going to get absolutely destroyed by the worst person in America, Hillary Clinton. Okay, time for things I like and things I hate. So we're going to do movies that are that are pre the Hayes Code. So I'm a big movie buff, um, and there is something called the Hayes Code that came into existence about 1933 to 1960. It was in Hollywood. It's, it's Hollywood makes fun of it now. Is this all the rules where if you had a man and a woman in a, in a room together, the man had they had, man had to have. Uh, one foot on the floor at all times. It's the one foot on the floor rule. It's why when you watch the old movies, the men and the women have separate beds. Right? It's why they cut to black every time there's about to be a sex scene. It's why the, the bad guys always pay at the end. The Hayes Code was a voluntarily imposed code in Hollywood that was brought about by the Catholic Legion of Decency. In the early 1930s, watch the films from the 20s and the 30s. And what you'll see is the films look a lot like today's films, actually. Like there's, there's sex and there's nudity and there's homosexuality and there's, there's anything that you can imagine. There's a movie called The Island of Dr. Moreau where, you know, their bestiality was a thing. Like there, there was a, and it was very controversial at the time. And, the, and Catholics said, we can't have our kids watching this stuff. We're going to boycott Hollywood. Right? We're not going to take part. So Hollywood had a voluntarily imposed code in the Hayes office. This is how the Motion Picture Association of America becomes so powerful. It's why they still are a ratings agency. And they, and they say, okay, well, from now on, here's a set of rules we're going to promulgate. And those rules include bad guys have to lose at the end of the movie. They include the, the no sex in the movies, no excessive violence in the movies. And 
you know, people on the left hate this. They think it's the worst thing in the world. Except that probably most of the great movies in Hollywood history are produced between 1933 and 1960. And if you look at the best movies in Hollywood history, you're looking Casablanca to Citizen Kane, on the waterfront to, to Best Years of Our Lives, to Gone with the Wind, right? All of these movies are produced during this period. They're pretty, like there's a very famous, very famous example, the Hayes Code, in Gone with the Wind, the very end, right? Rhett Butler turns to Scarlett O'Hara, no spoiler alert necessary, it came out in 1939. At the very end of the film, he turns to Scarlett O'Hara and she says, Rhett, where are you going? You take me with you, what, what are you doing? And, uh, and he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, right? So the Hayes Code came back to them, the Hayes office. They said, well, can you, use not, can you not use damn? And he said, no. No, we can't. We have to use that. It's in the book. Like, sorry. And so the Hayes Code said, okay, fine. And so they, they let it go. But there are lots of cases where the Hayes Code basically overruled things and cut scenes out and all this. So what we're going to do for this week is we're going to take films that were produced before the Hayes Code. Because there are a lot of films that, are, that, that have largely been forgotten, masterpieces. Um, before the Hayes Code came about, and they're very gritty and very hardcore. One of those films, this is one of my favorite films, it's a foreign film called M. You're going to recognize the star of this film, Peter Lorre, because he became big playing bit parts in uh, in the United States. This is a foreign film from Germany. The guy who directed it, Fritz Lang, came to the United States and became a pretty big director here too. Lorre was an honest-to-goodness movie star back in the old country, back in Germany. This is you know right as the Nazis were rising. And he um, he was Jewish, so he fled. Uh, like half of Hollywood did from from Germany. And what this film is about is Peter Lorre, who you see in Casablanca. He's the guy at the very beginning of Casablanca. You know, Peter Lorre. Everybody does the, the parodic stuff, right? They, they even do it it's in Aladdin. Right? There's a point where, where Robin Williams breaks into a Peter Lorre voice while he's doing the, while he's doing the, um, the genie, right? When he does the, uh, when he says, uh, we're going to raise you from the dead. He does a Peter Lorre voice, right? Peter Lorre is famous. He's in, uh, he's in Maltese Falcon. He's always playing this kind of creepy guy who's hanging around the fringes and he's corrupt. And he, so in this, in this movie, Peter Lorre, like I said, this is gritty stuff. Peter Lorre plays a pedophile. He's a, he's a guy who kidnaps and rapes children and kills them. And he is, and, and the movie is called M. And what ends up happening is that the police crack down in order to catch this guy. They, they have no idea who he is. In order to catch this guy, they crack down on the entire criminal underground. And so the criminal underground decides that if they want to stop this crackdown, they have to start looking for Peter Lorre. So now everybody's looking for Peter Lorre. So here's, uh, here's one of the scenes from, from M. So what you're seeing now is Peter Lorre looking through a, a glass window. And he's a child, of course. And for people who can't see, you're missing you know, how good the acting is. But he's, but I mean, basically he's turned on by the kid. It's so well shot. I mean, look how well shot this is, right? The, the, the shot over the collar of him looking down the street. And what, what's iconic from this film is every time he's... I mean, listen to the sound production, right? All you hear is the horns. Right, so... So what's iconic about that is that every time he's about to kidnap and rape a kid, he starts whistling Griggs in the Hall of the Mountain King, right? Which you, you know from the Ritz Crackers commercials. dun 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 So it's, it's a very creepy movie. The final scene of this movie is one of the best final scenes of any movie ever. I won't spoil it for you. You should go and rent it. It's not a very long movie, but it's a very intense movie. I mean, this is, <laughs> I mean, this is creepy stuff, right? He's following a little kid here. That's, that's what you can't see. If you're, if you, this is why you need to subscribe, folks. Ah, 
the kid found her mother. So super creepy. Uh, the whole movie is really creepy. Okay, we can stop it there. But the 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 final scene, I I should do a week where it's just best final scenes in movies. The final scene of this movie may be maybe the best final scene of any movie ever. It's a phenomenal scene. It's a phenomenal scene. I don't want to spoil it for you. I'll tell Lindsay and, and Mathis after the after the show what happens. But I don't want to spoil it for you because it's really great. Okay, things that I hate. So yesterday I debated Sally Cohn, and Sally Cohn did something that that was highly irritating to me. She lumped everybody in with Trump. Now for people like me who don't back Donald Trump, it makes me nuts when people try to lump my ideology in with a guy who's totally ideology-free. I mean, Trump is who Trump is, and he believes what Trump believes, and I don't believe any of those things, and so I've been very critical of Trump, more critical than Sally Cohn has been, probably. Michael Eric Dyson did the same thing on MSNBC. He said that Trump's nationalism is a white, racist, supremacist routine. I don't know why ABC's this week bothers to have him on, but they do, so here's what it sounded like. And when Donald Trump talks about building a wall, what he, what people are hearing for is that we ought to have a real nation for all of but us. See, this, Donald us. Trump's nation doesn't represent all of us. When he keeps, he wants to ban Muslims, he wants to keep immigrants out, he wants to build a wall. And look, when, at his rallies, when black people are pushed around, he, he then says, I will pay for the legal fees of this. I'm telling you, Donald Trump amplifies the worst instincts, and his nationalism is really a white, racist, supremacist nationalism that wreaks terror on the American I think insulting half of the American people who are supporting Donald Trump by I didn't saying say they're half racist. The Americans. You have no, to believe what I'm you have to believe that his supporters are I'm racist. I'm saying he to was slow to repudiate David. I think that demeans you and demeans he, us. No, no, no. He... Okay, so the, what the Trump guy there is saying is basically right that a lot of people who support Trump are not this. But one of the problems with Trumpism is that Trumpism reflects a nationalism that is not rooted in founding ideology. So nationalism without founding ideology really is no different from the nationalism of Britain or the nationalism of Greece. Uh, I think that in this way, Trump and, and Hillary are basically very similar. Don look, Donald Trump is a Democrat. He's a lifelong Democrat. He may be a more moderate Democrat than Hillary Clinton, but he's also running in my party. So we're going to have to see how this plays out. I mean, I'm not, I can't make a guarantee for the future if I'm never Trump You know, a, a week from now, if I'm never Trump two weeks from now. I'm never Trump as he currently stands, as I've said. Unless he changes, I can't see myself voting for Donald Trump. If he changes and if the left continues to do what the left is continuing to do, then things may change because the left is, is making it nearly impossible to look at them and take them seriously as a governing force in the United States, and that's the Democratic Party particularly. So that's, that's, the, that's the latest. We'll bring you more tomorrow. Uh, there'll be more to talk about, I'm sure, and we'll see you then. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 